But what changed wasn't that people who had been refusing to eat potatoes started to eat them because they were being encouraged to do so. What changed was that Frederick the Great and other members of the political classes and political philosophers and political economists, etc., started to become much more interested in what ordinary people were eating. Prior to that, that hadn't really been an important part of governing effectively. Of course, you wanted to make sure there wasn't a famine. Of course, you wanted to make sure that people weren't starving together. But what specifically ordinary people were eating wasn't really a part of statecraft. And that changed in the 18th century. And new models of how you built up a strong state were putting ever greater emphasis on having a robust and hearty population of workers. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Rebecca Earle, Professor of History at the University of Warwick in the UK. She was a Urias Fellow at SCAS in the academic year of 2017-2018. Rebecca Earle is an historian of food. She has also written about the cultural history of Spanish America, and early modern Europe, and is interested in how ordinary, everyday activities such as eating or dressing shape how we think about the world and how others view us. In her most recent book, Feeding the People, the Politics of the Potato, she offers the global history of the potato, and that is also the topic of today. And this is the second episode in our theme Latin America. Very welcome to Scus Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, I guess I want to start by saying thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to chat about my work, and particularly in the context of a SCAS talk, since SCAS and the opportunity to spend time at the Collegium played a really important role in the development of the book that you just mentioned. So it seems very fitting and also has a sort of attractive circular quality to be returning to SCAS, albeit virtually, to talk about this work. I've been interested in the history of the potato for an embarrassingly long period of time. I've been working on this project on and off probably since, I don't know, 2012, 2013, something like that. It, I guess that's a decade. That's a shockingly long amount of time. So before that, I worked on more on Latin American history, but I became more and more interested in the role of food as something that was really central to shaping colonial society in Latin America. But then as part of that, I also became interested in the way in which the foods from Latin America, such as maize, which I think you've had a, a previous podcast about, or tomatoes, or chocolate, or potatoes, traveled around the world. I became really interested in the journeys that these Latin American foods undertook and the different roles that these foods played in different parts of the world. And also the different sorts of big processes that you could explore by looking at a foodstuff. And that was what I tried to do in this book about potatoes. How come you got interested in the history of food? You said a little bit, but um, how, how come you ended up there? My background is really as a scholar of Latin America, although these days I think of myself much more as a historian of food. And BP, before potatoes, I was working on a, a project that looked at the ways in which European colonists understood the experience of traveling to a new environment and living in a new space, as they did during the colonial era from the 1500s up to the early 1800s. So I was interested in what did these settlers from Europe think happened to them physically when they moved to this totally new environment? Because the way that people thought about their bodies in that period meant that your bodies were always in dialogue with the world around you. What you ate and the air that you breathed and how much sleep you got and how much exercise you took. All of those things were thought to shape your, not just your state of mind, but your physical body as well. So food was really important. And as I got interested in this study about what, what was the physical experience of colonialism, it became more and more clear to me that food was really crucial in 
shaping the way that European settlers thought about themselves, their own bodies, and how they thought about the bodies of the native peoples that they encountered. And so food became, actually, it became really clear to me, a way of protecting European bodies from turning into indigenous bodies. If you ate too much an unfamiliar foodstuff, you not only would stress your body out, but you might actually change physically and develop a more indigenous body, which in fact, after all, was from the point of view of people at the time, that was probably how indigenous people had ended up having the kinds of bodies that they did. The Christian doctrine in that time period, in the so-called early modern period, you know, the 16th to 18th centuries or so, Christian doctrine insisted that everybody was the son of Adam and Eve. So how is there so much diversity in the world? Why do people look and behave very differently one from another? One of the principal explanations that was offered at the time was that it had to do with the different foods you ate. Eating too much indigenous food, as I said, could give you an indigenous body. And settlers were therefore very anxious about eating like an Indian, as you might put it. So I was writing about that. That was really, I think, when I started becoming somebody who was really interested in food as much as I was interested in colonialism or Spanish America. Those things became equally important. And I was really interested in how these foods that were very concerning and worrisome to settlers in colonial Spanish America were traveling around the world at the same time as Europeans were engaging in acts of trade and conquest and colonization all over the world. And with them were traveling all these things, all this stuff. Europeans were moving stuff around in this process of sailing around the world, etc. So I knew that foods like maize were reaching Italy in the 1500s, so that maize was being grown in the area around Venice by the mid-16th century, where it became a staple foodstuff. That's why Italians in the north of Italy eat polenta, made out of maize flour. It came from the Americas and was very early being grown. So at the same time that settlers in Mexico were quite anxious about eating maize, they were eating it, they had not so much choice, but they were very anxious about what was happening to them, whether they were going native on a physiological sense if they ate too much maize. At the same period, Peasants outside of Venice were growing maize and eating it themselves, where they had different feelings about what was happening with this food. So I got really interested in that. I got interested in how these foods were traveling around the world, but they had different meanings in different places. And the potato really attracted my attention for two reasons. One is that it seemed to me it was the most successful global traveler of them all. It was the food that traveled around the world most comprehensively, more so than any other staple. Lots of other foods from the Americas traveled all over the place and became really important. Tomatoes might be a contender as well. But the potato is so ubiquitous now all over the world. And I was really interested in that as a foodstuff that's traveled everywhere. And everywhere that it grows pretty much, people think of it as completely ordinary and local. It's not something that people think of as at all exotic. And so I was interested in how this immigrant foodstuff became a native all over the world. That was part of what I was interested in. And the other aspect of what I was interested in had to do with not so much the history of how the potato traveled around the world, but the historiography about it. That's to say, the way that historians had written about that history bothered me a lot. If we then start from the beginning, you already said the potato comes from Latin America. So what happened then? I mean, it was found in, it was cultivated in the Andes, right, from the beginning. How was it discovered and then subsequently traveled around the world? There's an ancient or very old history about plant domestication. So there are wild potatoes that grew and grow all along the, the spine of mountains that runs from the bottom of Chile, really, all the way up through South America and culminate in the Rocky Mountains, which are part of this same, same long mountainous spine, I guess is a, is a good word. So there are wild potatoes that have been grown and that people for many, many thousands of years ago, many were eating as a wild foodstuff. Domestication took place probably, I don't know, about 7,000 BC or so, and occurred in multiple different spots all along the Andes. 
that wild potatoes, in fact, were being eaten not only in South America, but also all the way up into what's now the United States. In, in Utah, there's some wild potato traces that have been uncovered by scientists there. So potato eating was something that was spread all across these mountainous zones of the Americas. Domestication occurred. They haven't found sites of domestication in North America that I've read, but in multiple different places in South America. And it became a staple food of Andean peoples in parts of what's now Chile and Bolivia and Peru and Ecuador into Colombia. So it was a very, very widely consumed food. And it's represented in the artwork of different peoples from those different Andean regions. And it was a very everyday, important, significant foodstuff. Not as widely revered and not as politically important as maize, as corn, which was very strongly linked to the Inca state, particularly one of the um, important empires that emerged in South America in the period, you know, roughly what would be the Middle Ages in Europe in that period. For the Incas, maize was a really significant foodstuff associated with all kinds of rituals, and there was lots of state support for the maize crop. Potatoes were a much more local crop. They were consumed by villagers. There were lots of village rituals that helped encourage the maize crop to grow and that were intended to ensure a fertile harvest. But it didn't have the same high status as maize did in the Inca Empire. However, nobody outside of the Andes really had ever laid eyes on a, on a potato at all. They were completely unknown. There was, you know, no Bombay potatoes in India, no potatoes in Ireland, no potato galettes in France, no potatoes at all anywhere before Europeans invaded the Americas in the early 1500s and encountered potatoes for the first time. The very first descriptions written descriptions of potatoes come from Spanish sources who describe this unusual root, as they called it, some kind of root. They say it's a bit like a chestnut or a bit like a truffle. It grows under the ground. It's the bread of these people. It's what these people eat instead of bread. So Europeans encountered it. They immediately recognized that it played a role in the indigenous diet that was equivalent to the role that bread played in the European diet. And with that, the potato set off on its global journey. That put in motion the potato, which then traveled all around the world. So there are now hardly a country in the world where the potato isn't grown. And that process of dissemination was one of the consequences of this early modern rise of colonialism and of trade and of enslavement. So that story of the potato spread can't be separated from this larger story of early modern trade, colonization, enslavement, really. That's very fascinating, I think, how you can say so much through the humble potato or see so much through it. So just to elaborate a little bit on that, could you tell us a little bit more how the potato was then introduced in other countries? How did it happen? And what was the reaction sort of? Some of the the history of how the potato arrived in different places is poorly understood. So we don't know who the agents, we don't know who the people were who were disseminating these potatoes. We know that they get spotted here and there, and we have evidence of them turning up in different parts of the world. But they rarely come with a full set of papers that explains who introduced them, how they got here. We can assume, however, that European sailors must have played a really important role in this process. This wasn't a process that was protagonized by deliberate state policies or anything like that. There are no directives that say, you must take potatoes with you when you sail to India. We simply begin to spot these new things that are called some kind of root from the Americas that start turning up in, for example, the Indian subcontinent. What we do have is a great deal of writing by later historians about this. And that was part of what I was alluding to a little earlier when I was saying one of the reasons I got interested in writing about potatoes was I was quite dissatisfied with the kinds of stories that historians had been telling. I mean, there's a lot of great scholarship on potatoes by historians, and I've relied enormously on some of the really pioneering works. There's a wonderful book written in 1949 called The History and Social Influence of the Potato. It's a famous book by somebody called Redcliffe Salomon. So there's some great scholarship, 
But there was one aspect of a lot of this scholarship that just didn't strike me as plausible. And that has to do precisely with the question you've just asked, which was how were potatoes received in other parts of the world? So let me tell you that old story and I'll try to explain why it bothered me, okay? The old story that scholars were telling goes something like this. The potato was introduced into Europe in the late 1500s. And when it first arrived, it was initially seen as a novelty food for members of the elites because it was unusual and unfamiliar. And there was a brief flurry of interest in the potato as as a sort of fashion item. But ordinary people, so the story goes, refused to eat potatoes because they were weird. They were knobbly. They grew under the ground. They were bumpy and peculiar looking. And they were cultivated not from seeds, but from tuber cuttings. And that was unusual. And Europeans didn't know how to do that. And they aren't mentioned in the Bible. And so nobody wanted to eat them because they probably were demonic. And they were from the same family as the deadly nightshade plant, so they must be poisonous. And so there were a whole series of reasons that were offered, allegedly explaining the supposed refusal of ordinary people to eat potatoes. So that was the situation, according to the story. Until the 18th century, when, according to the story, far-sighted, benevolent aristocrats like Frederick the Great or a famous scientist in France called Parmentier who recognized the potato's enormous nutritional power and capacity and vigorously promoted potatoes, sometimes engaging in clever tricks to lure people into eating potatoes. And eventually people fell for the potato's manifest charms and the rest is history. That's how the story goes. And that just didn't seem at all convincing to me. It didn't seem to me that was the way we told history anymore. We don't really necessarily start from the premise that ordinary people are basically stubborn and conservative and won't do anything until an aristocrat comes along and says, you must all eat potatoes. And then peasants say, oh, okay, well, if Frederick the Great says so, we better eat them. That didn't make a lot of sense to me. And the particular reasons why peasants in Europe were said to be refusing to eat potatoes also didn't make a lot of sense to me. For instance, this claim that was made that potatoes aren't mentioned in the Bible and therefore ordinary people wouldn't eat them. Well, first of all, I couldn't find any evidence from the early modern period of people saying we mustn't eat potatoes because they're not mentioned in the Bible. I couldn't find that. And anyway, most of the things that people were eating in early modern Europe aren't mentioned in the Bible. The Bible doesn't mention a whole ton of foods. So most of the things that Europeans were, ordinary people in Europe were eating, weren't mentioned in the Bible. And that wasn't apparently a problem, but it was for potatoes. So it was claimed. So that sort of felt funny to me. And I couldn't find any evidence that that was what people thought anyway. Or the the fact that it was a member of the same family as, as deadly nightshade or henbane, also said to be a problem. That also didn't make sense to me because... In the same period, the potatoes were supposedly being shunned because they were in the family of deadly nightshade and so probably poisonous. Europeans were also enthusiastically embracing the chili pepper, which they recognized was in the deadly nightshade family. So lots of writers in the 16th century were saying, well, there's this new thing from the Americas. It's called a chili pepper and it's in the family of the deadly nightshade. And we think it's superb and it's cheaper than black pepper and we're all we're all enjoying it. So why would it be okay to eat a chili pepper, which you knew was in the family of deadly nightshade, was a solanum, but you wouldn't eat a potato for the same reason? All of these reasons sort of bothered me. So I went on a sort of mission of collecting examples of peasants or small farmers in the 16th and 17th centuries growing potatoes. And so I found lots of evidence from botanists and other people writing about um, all kinds of different sources showing that Ordinary people indeed were growing potatoes, were perhaps among the earliest people to grow the potatoes, which would make a lot of sense because they were the people who had the horticultural expertise to cultivate new things, to engage in a certain amount of breeding and adaptation that was necessary to adjust the potato to Europe's different day lengths. So I started gathering a lot of evidence about that that seemed to, to my mind, undermine the story that nobody wanted to eat potatoes until the 18th century. 
But I also was interested in what was going on in the 18th century when people like Frederick the Great and Parmentier and France and lots and lots and lots of other people were indeed encouraging potato consumption. So the scholars who had been saying something happened in the 18th century, there was a change in how people talked about potatoes in the 18th century, were absolutely right. Something changed in the 18th century. But what changed wasn't that people who had been refusing to eat potatoes started to eat them because they were being encouraged to do so by Frederick the Great. What changed was that Frederick the Great and other members of the political classes and political philosophers and political economists, etc., started to become much more interested in what ordinary people were eating. Prior to that, that hadn't really been an important part of governing effectively. Of course, you wanted to make sure there wasn't a famine. Of course, you wanted to make sure that people weren't starving together. But what specifically ordinary people were eating wasn't really a part of statecraft. And that changed in the 18th century. And new models of how you built up a strong state were putting ever greater emphasis on having a robust and hearty population of workers. And so states and political philosophers, etc., became much more interested in looking at the eating practices of ordinary people and working out whether people were eating a nourishing diet that would make them strong and robust and able to make good sailors and soldiers and good people in agriculture who could produce a surplus of food, etc. So that was why people started getting interested in the potato in the 18th century. And that was why there was a huge flurry of interest in potatoes and in promoting potatoes in the 18th century. Not that nobody had been eating them before, but that what people were eating had started to become politically important. So it's a sort of public health question then. Exactly. Makes sense. I mean, even nowadays, people tell us what to eat or not eat, right? Yeah. So I also became interested in trying to connect this story of the 18th century promotion of the potato as a cheap and nourishing staple that people should be eating for their own health, for their own sake, you know, because it would be good for them. I got interested in trying to connect that to the history of public health advice today. So I was sort of interested in the way that I think we have a very complex, if not contradictory, relationship with government health advice today. I think we, on the one hand, we're sort of resentful when we're told what we ought to be eating. And I think we generally think it's our business that we really, you know, we shouldn't be dictated to. But we also have a general sense that the health of the population is connected to what people are eating. And that in the very least, other people ought to be eating more sensibly. So, I mean, there's lots of discussion in Britain, for example, about whether people who are extremely obese should be obliged to lose weight before they have surgery under the National Health Service, if their chances of making a full recovery are compromised by weight, you know, should they be obliged to diet? There's lots of discussion about that. And there's a lot of discussion about how public health requires people to be individually healthy. But we don't want to be told what to eat. So I was interested in the sort of origins of that tension, which I think go back to the 18th century and go back to the simultaneous emergence in the 18th century of both the idea that what the population ate was relevant to the well-being of the nation, on the one hand, what I was just outlining, and on the other, the emergence actually of capitalism and the idea of the free market, which insisted that everybody should be allowed to make their own individual choices and that you should not be controlled and constrained by the government, which will probably get it wrong, and that intellectual maturity should allow you to make your own choices, and that we should all be left individually to look after ourselves in terms of our own choices. So I was interested in the way in which those ideas emerged at the same time and be, become entangled, and I think continue to shape our somewhat contradictory attitude towards public health advice. So how did they entangle, if you want to pick one of these aspects or, or some of them. For example, capitalism. I mean, how does that work? Well, so one of the things I think that happened is that the way the potato was being promoted in the 18th century, once states started getting interested in public health, as you put it, once states started becoming concerned about whether the population was robust 
or was weakening the nation by eating the wrong things and drinking too much, etc. Once that interest started emerging and there started to be this encouragement of everybody to eat the potato, the encouragement was almost always framed in the language of individual choice. So rare was the government that said, we now insist everybody grow more potatoes. What generally happened was that there was a lot of propaganda about how potatoes were super delicious, highly nourishing, easy to grow, things that you would personally benefit from and that you would find toothsome and enjoyable. So the rhetoric in some sense was framed around individual choice. So that very free market idea that you're choosing what you want to do, we see present in the propaganda about potatoes in the 18th century in a way that was, of course, somewhat misrepresentative of the reality. It didn't talk about people making choices under circumstances of extreme poverty. It didn't talk about people making choices between very limited options. But the language was the language of choice. And I think that's that's not a coincidence. So we partly see that entanglement there. And then into the 19th century, the potato became almost a way of talking about the big changes that capitalism was wreaking, particularly across Western Europe. So on the one hand, there were people who criticized the potato as a way of allowing people to evade the discipline of the market, for example. So people who were in favor of the free market and who were in favor of liberal ideas about trade often looked at Ireland in particular. And what they saw when they looked at Ireland was an awful scene as far as they were concerned, because what they saw was a lot of Irish peasants who were able to avoid the market by growing their own potatoes on the tiny plots of land that they subsisted on, but who were then not becoming waged laborers, who were not becoming a rural proletariat, because they were able just about to keep body and soul together by eating potatoes, maybe with a bit of buttermilk. And this was considered an enormous affront to the rationality of the market. So there were quite a number of writers in Britain who, when the terrible famine struck the potato crops repeatedly in Ireland in the 1840s, saw this as an opportunity to eradicate what they saw as an archaic pre-capitalist system of production and replace it with the discipline of wage labor. So there were some people who saw the potato as something that enabled people to escape the discipline of capitalism and thought who disapproved of it for that reason. There were other people who saw the potato as precisely enabling the sort of capitalist exploitation that critics condemned because it allowed people to be paid very low wages, but in perhaps not so much in Ireland, but in other parts of Western Europe, and allowed people to stay alive to be exploited as writers at the time put it. There were some writers who were very explicit about seeing the potato as something that enabled capitalist exploitation because it kept you alive, just about to be badly treated by landlords. So the potato became a way in which people talked about the huge transformations that capitalism was, was introducing. Some people saw it as a problem for capitalism. Some people saw it as the handmaiden of capitalism. But it's not a coincidence that when Marx was talking about the peasantry in France, for example, and he wanted to say, oh, they're outside of politics. They don't join together collectively. They're these atomized, isolated individuals who don't form together politically. He said they're a sack of potatoes. He was drawing on this image of the potato as something that enables a kind of isolation and separation from the modern world. So yeah, the potato became a way of talking about politics and about the economy in the 19th century. Talking about a sack of potatoes, we still talk about couch potatoes also. There was much discussion in the 19th century of the idea that eating too many potatoes was actually turned you into a kind of peasant, almost in a reprisal of the idea that was around centuries earlier when Spaniards went to Latin America and were worried that eating too many potatoes would give them a sort of indigenous body. In the 19th century, there was this idea that if you ate too many potatoes, it would give you sluggish potato blood and would make you stolid and lumpen and less productive. And there were serious scientists who engaged in studies where they correlated the per capita potato consumption of small farmers, industrial workers, etc., in different parts of Europe, and related this, correlated their potato intake to their effectiveness as workers. 
and tried to show that regions with high potato consumption had low productivity because of sluggish potato blood. That's interesting. But it's, I mean, it also relates to that we say you are what you eat and that also we still have these ideas nowadays also a little bit that we're highly influenced by food. I agree. I think that the early modern ideas that I was describing were part of a system of understanding the body that in some ways looks completely alien, but in other ways is actually very familiar. The bit that looks alien was the scientific explanation that was offered at the time. So the explanation at the time that was offered to explain why what you ate might shape your state of mind and your physical body drew on the idea of the four humors and the idea that your body was composed of these different humors of blood and phlegm and different types of bile, and that that the balance of these humors would give you a particular personality. It might make you phlegmatic if you had too much phlegm. You might be sanguine if you had a lot of blood, etc. And that that also shaped your physical appearance. That sort of seems a bit strange as an explanatory model. But the idea that how much exercise you take and what kind of sleep you get and exactly what you're eating, etc., will affect your emotions, will affect your body, all of that, that seems commonsensical to us, I think. We're not as different in a way as we might think. In Sweden, the potato was introduced by Olaf Rudbeck in 1724, I've read, but it didn't become popular immediately, apparently. Do you know anything about the Swedish potato history? Yeah, so just as I was, I'm a little bit skeptical about this, the history that says nobody was eating potatoes until scientists started investigating them in the 18th century. I'm a little skeptical about that chronology for Sweden as well. There seems to be some evidence for the presence of some sort of new world tuber in Sweden before that. So I will say a little bit about these new world tubers, that one of the things that makes it complicated to trace the dissemination of the potato through early modern Europe is nomenclature. There are a number of different tubers from the Americas that hit European shores over the course of the 16th century. So there was the potato. There's also the sweet potato, which originates really from the Caribbean, from the Atlantic coast of parts of Brazil. So slightly different climatic zones. So there's the sweet potato. And there's also the Jerusalem artichoke. All of those different root vegetables, tubers from the Americas, arrive kind of, you know, over sequentially over some decades. but they came with multiple different names. So they were sometimes given names that kind of connected them to the indigenous names. Sometimes they had names that just referred to them as kind of roots or tubers or truffles or knobs or, you know, something, you know, kind of knobbly things that grow under the earth. There are all these different words. And so it's not always clear when you see an account from somebody saying, oh, these underground roots from the new world. Are they talking about potatoes, about sweet potatoes, about Jerusalem artichokes? What do they have in mind? And of course, there were also yams, which really are were familiar to Europeans from, from Africa, for example, which were also considered a form of root, knob, tuber, lump thing. So it's not always so clear quite precisely which things are. And you can see this today in the similar names, potato and sweet potato, because people saw them as very similar, right? They look similar. Yeah. You know, botanists can say, oh, they're completely different botanically, but that's from the use value and from their appearance. People saw them as very similar. So quite what some of these early things that were turning up in Sweden are, it's a little bit hard to be certain. But what we can be sure of is that Swedes were not put off by unfamiliar knobbly roots from the Americas, whether they were sweet potatoes or whether they were potato potatoes, things that were not mentioned in the Bible and, you know, etc., were being eaten by people in Sweden. So we have that sort of history. But just the same way I was saying in other parts of Europe, there was a lot of interest in the 18th century in encouraging potato consumption so as to build up hearty populations. We find the same thing in Sweden. 
So the Swedish Academy of Sciences was investigating potatoes. In fact, one of the first women who was involved in that wrote some scientific papers about what you could do with potatoes and converting them into forms of starch, etc. So there was lots of scientific investigation. And one of the things that they were interested in is to try to find new things that you could distill instead of grain. Because people were now concerned about the wastefulness of feeding grain to animals, right, to raise meat. So there's a lot of discussion about how a vegetarian or a vegan diet might be better because you're not wasting grain by feeding it to animals, which we then ate, you know, you could just eat the grain. There was an 18th century concern about wasting grain by distilling it into alcohol. And people felt that was wasteful and the grain should just be eaten. But there was also a sort of recognition that people might want to distill something. So there was lots of experimentation of what you could distill instead of grain. And potatoes were something that people started experimenting with all over Europe, including in Stockholm. So there were scientific reports in the proceedings of the Scientific Academy on how you could make a brandy out of potatoes. And these things were being published in the 1730s. So there was a whole lot of potato research being conducted under royal auspices, you know, in these um, scientific institutions in 18th century Sweden. I think that's really fascinating. Also how you immediately not only eat new things, but also look for other uses. Exactly. The same time that people were trying to figure out how to distill it, whether you could make a bread out of it, whether you could make a leavened bread that rose properly, which wasn't easy because potatoes don't have very much gluten. People were also experimenting on using it as an animal feed. Did animals like it? There was all sorts of experimentation about using it, just as you said, in multiple ways. What about introduction of new food nowadays? I mean, once in a while something new comes up and it's trendy and everybody wants to eat it or people are skeptical. Can you see any parallels there to the introduction of the potato? Well, that's an interesting question. So one thing that's very different about the way that we encounter new foods today compared to what it was like 500 years ago or 400 years ago is the world is much more connected through, well, not just print journalism, but through the internet as well, and through well-developed systems of advertising and communication, which started to emerge in the 18th century, but have really been transformed in you know, the contemporary world. So the way in which ideas spread is quite different, and there's, it's much easier to promote a new foodstuff in a very wide-reaching way that will encounter large numbers of people. So there's, there are many changes. But I guess there are also interesting things. There are different models for why people in Europe might have been interested in potatoes in the early modern period, and which draw on kind of different images of how human beings respond to novelty. So there's a kind of model that says generally new foods are successful when they fit into our existing mental landscape. And so if something is a bit like something you're familiar with, maybe you're more likely to eat it. So in the 16th or 17th centuries, for example, people would say, oh, the unfamiliar bean varieties from the Americas, things like the kidney bean, were more easily adopted into Europe because they were a bit similar to fava beans or the other types of beans that Europeans ate. So they didn't seem so novel and that made them quite easy to be embraced. It wasn't a, you didn't have to adopt a whole new way of eating. So we can think about whether some of the newish foods that we're encountering try to fit their way into our dietary practices by seeming familiar to us, and whether all of these plant-based milk alternatives, for example, are fundamentally you know, trying to slot into the role that milk played. They're not trying to create an entirely new way of eating. They're sort of you know, going into the milk groove, perhaps. That's one sort of model for how dietary change happens. It's when it doesn't look so unfamiliar. The other model is to say, actually, the things that are often very successful are the things that are totally novel, the things that don't replicate what's already being done. And so sometimes people will say, well, potatoes were less successful in this or that part of the world because there was already a well-established staple. 
and there wasn't a need for a potato, and that foods are embraced when they fulfill some new need. And so in the early modern period, chocolate was often cited as an example of that. Chocolate first reached Europe as a drink. And incidentally, it was Europe's first real encounter with a caffeine-like substance, really before tea or coffee, actually. But there the argument is that chocolate consumed as a hot drink became super popular because it was so novel, because it was unfamiliar, it was new. People weren't used to having this sort of thing. And people embraced it as this delightful new way of eating. So there are different sorts of explanations for how we embrace new foods. And I don't have a strong answer myself. I think you can have different explanations explaining different types of food being successful or not successful. I was joking with a friend this morning that all the nice things like um, crisps and popcorn and chocolate, it all comes from the new world. That's true. All of our best nibbles. Peanuts too. Yes. So we were saying thank you, Columbus. Well, thank you, farmers of the Americas. Of course. Yes. What would have happened if the potato had not gone on this world journey, this global trip it has made and influenced all the things that we have talked about? Can you speculate about that? Well, some some scholars have argued that the potato was crucial to global population growth from its introduction. There's a long-standing school of argument that says because the potato is such a super great food, because it's so calorific, because it's so easy to grow in a range of different terrains, because it makes relatively little demands on water use, because it's such a good food, it's so productive, etc. It enabled population growth around the world to take off, particularly from the 18th century, which is certainly true that population growths around the world increased enormously in the 18th century. So there's some people who correlate this to the potato. There's one oft-cited study that attributes 25% of overall population growth since the 18th century to the potato, which is you know pretty good going for a single tuber. So there's, there's an argument that we wouldn't have had the same population growth without the potato. And connected to that, Some people also say that it was this population growth, which partly explains industrialization and what we might call the Industrial Revolution, particularly in 18th century Europe, which required it to be possible for the population to produce food with fewer people, growing it so that there was a surplus of labor to move into these other industries, and that you needed this nourished population to be able to to then specialize in other areas. So there's an argument about that. I mean, there's, you know, whether that's truly the case or not, there are other sorts of explanations that you could offer for how Western Europe fed itself during the 18th and 19th centuries, during the period of industrialization, in which the role of colonial spaces were clearly very important in supplying food for Europe. But there is that argument that without the potato, we would have had neither global population growth nor the industrial revolution. So that's one sort of speculation that you you could make. That's quite a thought, quite an effect of the humble potato, I would say. Yeah. Since this is an episode within our theme Latin America, we can just return to Latin America for a moment. What is the status of the potato there today? That's a good question. So during the colonial period, when Latin America, well, Spanish America, Latin America minus Brazil, effectively, was being governed by Spain, there was an extremely hierarchical, racially structured society and political structure in which being indigenous was not, was low down on the hierarchy of power. So indigenous people, the colonized, were absolutely subordinated to people of European origin. And given that the potato was linked to the indigenous diet and was linked to indigenous people more generally, the potato itself was also seen as a pretty low status food in the colonial period. It was a food that indigenous people ate particularly, not uniquely, but particularly. So for a long time, potatoes were seen as a very humble food eaten by indigenous people, you know, not a high status food at all. And there's lots of good evidence of that. In the last, I don't know, two decades or so, Peru has been 
undergoing a bit of a global culinary renaissance. It's being seen as, as a bit of a powerhouse. There's something called New Andean Cuisine, which combines kind of fine dining practices and molecular gastronomy and all of that stuff with local foodstuffs. And so there's been a sort of rediscovery of indigenous Andean foodways in Peru, which are then getting given the fine dining treatment and are becoming a source of cultural capital and prestige for Peru and attractive to tourists who might be visiting and who want to try local cuisine and are interested also in having a a fine dining experience, but with a local dimension. And potatoes have become quite significant in that, and particularly the brightly colored and unusually shaped varieties of potatoes, which we're increasingly finding in other parts of the world as well. That's becoming quite significant in sort of this you know, New Andean cuisine as a way of demonstrating the uniqueness and variety of Peru's food culture. So potatoes are becoming quite significant in that way as a kind of marker of national identity in a way. And so, in fact, 2008 was declared by the United Nations the International Year of the Potato. It was a year-long celebration of the potato. And the impetus behind making 2008 the International Year of the Potato came from the Peruvian government, which lobbied very vigorously to do this. And there's been some border tensions between Peru and Chile, for example, over patenting some varieties of potato. Chile tried to to sort of effectively trademark a number of potato varieties as Chilean. And the Peruvian government responded very sharply and very quickly and said, no, 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 these, these are part of Peru's national heritage. They're not part of Chile's national heritage. So there's been a certain amount of what we could call gastro-nationalism around the potato. So that's going on. And that's provided some openings for indigenous people to benefit in some ways from this. So there's some indigenous communities that have also tried to capitalize on the appeal of these local varieties. There's a something called the Potato Park, which has been set up in one region where you can go on sort of potato holidays and go on a potato trail and taste local varieties. So some of the financial benefits that are coming from the sort of potato renaissance, some of them are making their way into Andean communities, but not not as many as, as might be the case. Interesting. I found a lot of potato festivals online and so on. So once you start digging into the subject, potatoes just seem to be everywhere. Absolutely. There is not a single thing that is not part of the world of the potato, really. Talking about that, you when we um, prepare for this interview, you told me that you can connect any topic to the potato. So I was thinking about putting you to the test here in this podcast. Our other topics this term during the spring of 2022 are genetics and evolution and also gender and developmental issues and human rights. And I can see quite a clear connection of the potato to genetics and evolution as an plant breeding and so on. But could you for me make a connection to our two other topics? We can start with gender. How can you connect the potato? Well, so one of the things to think about is the story of the introduction of the potato into early modern Europe. So I was suggesting that contrary to the old story that said that small farmers wouldn't grow potatoes until they were encouraged to do so until the 18th century, I was suggesting that actually small farmers were among the first people in Europe to be growing potatoes for their own sustenance. But we could probably go farther than that and say it was probably women who were among the first to be growing potatoes because the places where potatoes seem to have been grown earliest was in cottage gardens. They weren't being grown in open fields immediately, which makes sense. I mean, that's not, you don't plant out your main field if you have a field with some new crop, you might try growing it with a few cabbages outside your cottage, for example. So it seems that they were being grown in cottage gardens in the early modern period initially. And if they were being grown in cottage gardens, that means they were being grown by women, because it was women really who maintained these small gardens. And then we have developmental issues and human rights. Well, so I think the things I was saying a moment ago about who was benefiting from the cachet of the Andean potato is a question about development in human rights. So in the post-war period, 
there were efforts on the level organized you know, partly through the United Nations, through the World Bank, partly by organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation to promote global food security through the establishment of scientific plant breeding centers. We could think as a backdrop about the post-war concern for global food security and the attention that it gave to really commercially traded grains fundamentally. That was what organizations were concerned about when they talked about food security in the 1960s and the 1970s. They were thinking about international commodities like rice or like maize or like wheat. And that was what the scientific attention went into. However, those things, those grains, those internationally traded commodities were actually not the principal source of food for, I mean, maybe as many as, I don't know, 50% of the world's population. I mean, large, large numbers of people were subsisting not on these grains, but on either what are often called minor grains, you know, smaller grain, millet, or, you know, less important grains, or tubers. But the Rockefeller Foundation, etc., was not interested at all in supporting scientific research into the tubers that were actually feeding most of the world. There's some very poignant examples of development officials being offered advice on by locals saying, look, you know, you're here and you want to investigate what we eat in this village. Let us tell you about how we cultivate these tubers, because that's really important. And these um, development officials saying we're not interested in tubers. So there's a whole history about the focus of scientific attention versus the food supplies of many parts of the world that we could, I think, absolutely see as a question linked to development, because it was often development officials who were unable to recognize the importance of tubers, such as potatoes. So it's absolutely a story about development. And it's also a story in a way about global justice, I think, both in terms of whose foods are considered important and merit scientific attention, but also a question of who benefits when those foods then do become important. So is it restaurateurs in Lima? I mean, I've got no gripe with restaurateurs in Lima per se at all using potatoes, but does the, does the cachet that the potato might have in a restaurant in Lima translate into benefit for indigenous communities? That's an interesting question. And I'll, I'll end by saying, that some of those big organizations, among those big scientific organizations that were set up from the 70s to promote breeding and priority crops, eventually there was one devoted to potatoes, and that's, that's in Peru, the International Potato Research Center, or the SIP. And they have recently been involved in what are called repatriation programs with local indigenous communities in Peru, where they're looking at repatriating some of the genetic seed material that they have on potatoes back to these villages to allow sort of co-ownership. So there's some, some attempts by some of these organizations to think through the questions of justice and development in those ways. Yes, the potato is everywhere. You see? It's very fun to make these connections, I think. It also shows how important food is for us as human beings and in our history and in the society. Absolutely, I think so. I mean, it's such a fundamental part of human existence that how could it not be part of history? How do you like to prepare and eat potatoes yourself? Do you have any favorites? I'm very boring. I really like boiled potatoes. I like plain well-boiled potatoes. That was one of the things I learned from this project was how to boil potatoes really well. In the 18th century in Europe, there was lots of discussion of this. And it was generally agreed that what was called the Irish method of cooking potatoes whole from cold in cold water, not boiling water, but very, very, very slowly, as slowly as you possibly could, even possibly adding cold water to the pan periodically to keep the temperature low. But that's the way to make a really good boiled potato. And I think that's true. And I think, boring though it is, that's my favorite way of eating potatoes. I had a boiled potato for lunch in my salad today. And I can't think of a better way to eat a potato. Yeah, that is very nice. Do you have any favorite um, sorts or any favorite potato that you like? In Britain, where I am, there's been the same 
interest in heritage varieties and interesting new varieties. And there are all sorts of really delicious ones. My cousin gave me some pink fur potatoes that he grew, which are from a brother-in-law and sister-in-law have given me some that are really delicious. So there's certainly some wonderful varieties. Most of the potatoes that I eat come from a local sort of community-supported agriculture place five miles or so away from where I live. And I just eat whatever they happen to be growing. So I eat the things that my local farm has determined grow particularly well right here where I live. So they have a certain, there's a certain terroir quality to my potatoes. If they were growing different potatoes, I'm sure I would eat them happily too. Let's also talk a little bit about gas, where I am right now, and you've been here a couple of years ago, the fellow. So how was your time at SCAS? What was your experience here? Oh, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. I think in the acknowledgements of the Big Potato book that you were mentioning, I thanked SCAS and I thanked Bjorn Wittrock for his, I think I said, his visionary approach to collegiality. And I think that is a really good word for SCAS. I think it has a visionary approach to thinking about collegiality, where the only demands that are made on you as a visiting scholar are that you engage with the other scholars. So those of you who are familiar with SCAS will know that there is a daily lunch that one is expected to attend. And that seems like a very minimal requirement that you go and eat the delicious lunch which is cooked for you by the incredibly talented kitchen team. It's delicious food as a reason that you'd want to attend that lunch regardless. But really the purpose of it is to bring together people who are working on linguistics and on history and on classics and on political science, etc. All of these different topics and to introduce you to each other and to give you an opportunity to talk about your own research and other people's research, I found it incredibly fruitful and stimulating. And it was it seemed like an enormous luxury that I could be thinking about something and I could think, oh, I wish I knew more about this. I don't really understand this concept from classical rhetoric, which I'm reading in this theoretical piece that I'm reading. I'm reading some theoretical piece about the extended brain hypothesis And I would like to talk to a philosopher who understands this, or I would like to talk to somebody who understands classical rhetoric to explain this term. And there they would be at lunch. And you could just sit there. It's like having a living Wikipedia. So there were all of these people who just knew this stuff. So I could ask questions. But even more than that, I think by listening to what other people were working on, it helped me ask new questions. So even when I wasn't talking about potatoes and I was just listening to what other people were working on, that also really helped me ask new questions that I don't think I would ever have thought about. So it was really, really important to helping me come to grips with a project that it was while I was at SCAS that I figured out how to tell the story I wanted to tell. And that was due to those opportunities. And I mean, that's leaving aside the fact that it's so beautiful and that the accommodation is just so conveniently designed and carefully thought through. There's an incredibly supportive team of people there who make everything pleasurable to, to do. It was absolutely idyllic. I have enormous gratitude to all of the people at SCAS for having given me that opportunity. Thank you very much for joining us on SCAS Talks and talking about your research to me and our listeners, of course. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to, to talk about potatoes. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This time I have talked to Rebecca Earle, Professor of History at the University of Warwick in the UK. She was Juria's Fellow at SCAS in the academic year of 2017-2018. We have heard more about the humble potato and how it has shaped global history and politics. And this was the second episode in our theme, Latin America. In episode 32, Carsten Peregard, Professor Emeritus of Social Anthropology, at the University of Gothenburg, took us to the Andes and told us more about climate change, climate perception and water management in Peru. Previously, we've also learned more about maize and wheat, 
two of the other most important staple foods in the world. In episode 33, Helen Ann Curry, Senior Lecturer in History of Modern Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge, told us more about endangered maize, industrial agriculture and the crisis of extinction. And earlier I talked to Susanne Wengle, Associate Professor in Political Science at the University of Notre Dame in the USA, about Black Earth, White Bread, a techno-political history of Russian agriculture and food. And that was episode 29. This term, the spring of 2022, we feature the following topics. Latin America, gender, genetics and evolution, and also developmental issues and human rights. Regular listeners of this podcast will know that the variety of themes reflects the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS, with fellows from many different disciplines. And the list of podcast episodes and themes is constantly growing. We started off in the summer of 2020 with the coronavirus pandemic and went then on to also feature the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. There should be something of interest for everyone. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you could recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend, or why not to your students. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and I would like to thank Rebecca Earle once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now.